Osiris. Folks, I'm David Goldstein. Hi, I'm Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to a bit of a bonus episode of the Beyond the Pond podcast. Generally speaking, as you may be aware by now, this is the podcast in which Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other bands, generally non-jam bands, because we love Fish. We are Fish fans, big Fish fans. But the problem with some Fish fans is that they get a bit myopic, they kind of need to go outside the box, and they get stuck listening to fish and fish alone. So we're trying to do a little something about that. Absolutely. And we've got a really cool interview and conversation here for you today. And today's episode, um, we sat down recently with the writer and traveler, Grayson Curran, talk uh, a bit about his travels he's been on the road for the better part of the last 14 months i think it is with his wife and his cat traveling around north america in a giant van going to some pretty cool remote spots and kind of weaving in and out of the out of the country here and there they've run a bunch of marathons just some really awesome stuff that they've been up to um grayson also is a writer who wrote two articles that we really enjoyed for the last year, one about kind of the experience of traveling in rural parts of America and listening to CDs because you run out of bandwidth for your Apple Music or Spotify and kind of what that's like as a throwback, as well as he wrote wrote a really cool article about um, a lot of the artist movement towards artist-curated festivals and kind of how that's changing the landscape. and then finally, we uh, wanted to talk to him about his um, kind of long-running fandom with the Dave Matthews Band and how he went from being a fan of Dave Matthews to being basically the head metal writer at uh, Pitchfork. <laughs> so it was a pretty wide-ranging conversation. It was a ton of fun, wasn't it? Yeah, it was absolutely fun. He's clearly uh, he's a very soulful guy, and he's been certainly been one of my favorite pitchfork writers for a long time now like you said lots of metal records lots of instrumental stuff sort of uh some more of the avant out there stuff also recently did a fantastic review of bob dylan's time out of mind for um yeah i guess recently pitchfork they started doing on sundays they take a classic record and devote like a long-form essay to it and uh his write-up of time out of mind was most excellent so yeah, this was a very interesting conversation. Lots of good back and forth. I think it came out well, and uh, you know, I was absolutely fascinated by what this guy had to say. So, anything else? So just get to it. I say we get to it. There's a lot of content here, and um, we're gonna play some music in between some of our conversations as some bands come up. Um, but I think that. If you guys like what we do here at Beyond the Pond, if you like the music that we've recommended, I think you're just going to really enjoy a lot of um, what uh, what Grayson has to say about music in general and about some of our favorite acts.
Well, I think I think Adam Duritz and Dave Matthews are both in a similar spot where they need someone to step in and like not not like record their record, but like actually almost like Rick Rubin kind of vibe session, like, hey, let's talk about your priorities and let's talk about what your actual interests are in life besides entertaining ten to twenty thousand people at a time. Like what let's make a record that is more consistent with those reflections on life. Um and not just a crowd pleaser. I don't know. I, I feel I feel like maybe those two guys have something left in the tank. I mean they gotta get they got to get like the right engine to help them hmm. get it out or something. I mean, I think it's interesting because I think back to your uh, review of Time Out of Mind, and I think if you go back to like late '80s, early '90s, Dylan, I you know I was really young at the time. I was not a Dylan fan yet, but um, I can't really imagine. And reading Chronicles, I can't really imagine a lot of people expecting him to make another monumental record. And then somehow he had in him one of his best records he's ever made. Um, when he was, how old was he when he made Time Out of Mind? Like mid fifties at that point in time. Yeah, that's right. Uh, late yeah. late fifties, I think. Late fifties. Um, and I feel like that's like the model that someone like Dave Matthews or Adam Duritz would be looking to is like, <clears throat> what do you have to say when you're the elder statesman that you simply couldn't say when you were twenty five years old? when everybody thought you had peaked that can like change the trajectory of your career, which then creates that like really unique hindsight period where people start to look at the records that they dismissed in the moment, but actually find a lot of gems in. Like you look at a lot of eighties Dylan now that's getting revived simply because he made such great work in his later years. Yeah. I, yeah, I totally, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a weird point. It's a, it's a interesting debate because I, yeah, people, people all say like, man, you just don't want to hear a good Dave Matthews record anymore. You couldn't even recognize it if you, if it happened. And I'm like, yeah. I, I would, I would totally love to hear a good Dave Matthews record, a record that did something interesting. Um, I think that would be so fun. Um, I think a, and, a lot of Dave Matthews problems to me, I mean, kind of starting with a lot of overproduction. I mean, oh yeah. Every day. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, that was. That was the like Glenn Ballard disaster that came out in, like February two thousand one. That was um yep. that was that was not good. Yep. Yeah, I kind of certainly I'll still ride for the first three albums. That was before the production got out of hand. Even before these crowded streets had some pretty good songs, but it was getting totally very good. slick. Really I don't know. I don't I I don't know. I completely I really disagree with that. I, I don't think I don't think I don't think before these crowded streets get slick. I think before these crowded streets, and this is just my opinion, obviously, I feel like before these crowded streets is kind of trying to sort of have two conversations at once, okay. and and you can sort of see that bear out with every day and the low light sessions if you look at them like together. And one is, one conversation is like we want to be a radio band, and so like you go you know like stay and you know every day the song aren't that far apart. Right. Um, and and also like Monkey Man or Kit Kat Jam or whatever and Don't Drink the Water which or um, the Dreaming Tree are really similar. They're like these two and so I think like they're just like battling twin impulses. And that's why I think Before These Crowded Streets to me is so interesting because it's a record where you see them like reckon with themselves and say, What the fuck 
are we trying to be as a band? And then, and then they like had that conversation out loud and we were lucky enough because I think it was like, what is it? Like four people had copies. Apparently four people had copies of, um, what they call summer so far, I guess, which is the little light sessions. Yes. Mm. And somehow we got to hear them and we got to peek behind that curtain and say, Whoa, you know, like, it, how and I think that's so and so. I'll I don't never know forget this... when I first got a copy of the Lily White Sessions and I heard it. I think it was summer two thousand one. Was that right after Every Day came out that that emerged? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah it was. I think it was going to be released. They thought it was too blue, so that's when he put out Every Day and he's like, "This record saved my life." Right. When in fact the Lily White Sessions were, to my mind, was... like eight hundred times better. Yes. Standing here, the old man said to me Long before these crowded streams Here stood my dreaming tree Below it he would sit for hours at a time Now progress takes away what forever took to find And now is falling hard, he feels the falling dark How it longs to be so um, in January, I went to Chicago, flew from Phoenix to Chicago, um, where Riley Walker uh, was doing a complete re-recording of the Little Light Sessions. Holy crap. Um, Wait, really? What? Yeah, and it's finished. It's totally Holy crap. Bonkers. Holy shit. And amazing. Um, so we're just finishing it. I just wrote the liner notes for it, and I just sort of kind of stumbled my way through the bio for it this after, this evening. Oh, my God. And I got a turn that in today but but so i think like what we're talking about um so riley is sort of more um generous toward the latter-day dave matthews band than i am yeah but we both kind of agree that like that's the record where the sense of possibility that existed for that band kind of peaked yeah um and when they turn to every day it disappears right. like they came back to some of those songs of course on busted stuff but they're a lot more stiff. They're less fun. And calling the Little White Sessions fun is kind of a stretch anyway. But I mean fun in the sense that, like, it feels like they're exploring Absolutely. a new space as a band. Yeah. Um, and after that, and I think for a lot of people, that's kind of like where they checked out the band. That was my that's totally point. I had just lost track after Little White Sessions. I didn't listen yeah. to Stand Up or Big Whiskey, yeah. The Groove That's King or any of that. Yeah, it's, it's weird, too, because, you know, I... For, so, so I wrote this piece for NPR about the band, um, and I went back and listened to everything that they that they made. And you know, like in all those records, maybe there were like six songs. I was like, oh wow, these songs are these songs are good. Like these are there's some pretty they're like two songs a record. It's kind of kind of the dirt's problem. Yeah. They're like two songs a record here that I would that I could totally vouch for if it came down to it. Um, but it's just. I don't know. It's just kind of a mess. It's just no one to sort of guide the ship. And it's sort of like this fulfillment of it's sort of a guy trying to fulfill this obligation. He thinks to, he has to a fan base right, right, and doesn't right. quite know how to do it. It's funny. Um, um, well, that was the impression I got um, from the interview with David Marchese in yeah. um, like Vulture, New York yeah. Magazine. Right. My, yeah, uh, he's... I, 
my brother was just visiting me and um he he and i uh, like always like cross paths and then diverge paths in terms of music and he was like don't hate me but i'm going through kind of a dave matthews renaissance right now and yeah it kind of piqued my curiosity because i hadn't really revisited their older stuff in some time and so we started listening to some live shows and we threw on um uh remember two things and before these crowded streets and anyway we had a bunch of people over for dinner and we were all having a, some drinks and sitting around our table out in the back of our house and i threw on um uh the red rock show the uh, seek up and instantly yeah like, it was like a vinyl scratch someone was like is this dave matthews and i was like yeah and immediately started this conversation that i i thought was fascinating dave matthews to me and to a lot of people i know to my age are like one of the most influential bands that we ever heard and they absolutely like opened my eyes to what was possible in music and then i left yep. them behind and almost i'm like not embarrassed but like i don't i don't like proudly say that in a lot of ways and re-listening to them i was like I, I totally hear that connection once again. Like I hear like these like filters like reconnecting to each other in a way. It was it was really interesting. I mean, this is entirely so. Uh, my so this is entirely what you're talking about is the point of the the Riley thing. And so those you yeah. know the Riley songs, you know, digging a ditch now sounds like a uh, dinosaur junior single, <laughs> and Grace is Gone still sounds like a really sounds like a better version of Grace is Gone. Yeah. Um. Uh, bartender. Bartender sounds like a fucking Swans and Akron family collaboration. Oh, I wow. mean, which is kind of the way it always sounded, but now it just sounds like turned up for like it just sounds it sounds bigger and badder. Um and are, can you guys hear me okay? Oh yeah, you're Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, I'm so I'm, right I'm like I'm like desperately walking around <laughs> Omaha uh trying to find the power plug so that my phone doesn't go out of charge uh but if it does i'll figure out some way to call you back cool, um cool. real fast no, we can hear so i'm trying to find fine. the van seems to be uh filtering the signal so um so that's let's see so so there's that so bartender and you know there's some totally free jazz stuff um there's some straight up funk jams and it's really it's a map really and the way i talk about it is it's a map of where of, of the sort of roads that the Dave Matthews band helped lead Riley to. And I think that's true of so many people. And it's true of so many music critics and musicians I talk to. Um, and I think, I think it's a thing that for a long time people are ashamed of because yeah. it is, it, it's like this, this weird stigma. And I get that, but it's also, it's silly. Um, Cause we're all just like, you know, kids that, stumble into whatever record we stumble into and maybe that leads us somewhere interesting um
curse that sent him free after three days in the ground. With Dave Matthews, um, just before these crowded streets, that album's kind of interesting for me because that was released in April, I think, of 1998, which was yep. my that was my freshman year of college. So mm-hmm. on my dorm, on the floor, I was in the first floor, there would be five doors open, all playing that record at the same time. So it'd be like the yeah. ultimate Dave Matthews mega matchup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thinking, and also, I mean, I went to high school in the Northeast, went to college in Jersey, and it just, you know, what's some of the elements of the Dave Matthews shows in the parking lots, I'd see like rival high schools from Connecticut getting drunk and getting into brawls. And although I know mm-hmm. it doesn't have anything to do with the music, it kind of clouded my vision a bit, thinking of like, are these the people I really want to hang out at the concert? If they're like beating themselves bloody before going into the show, if they go into the show at all, it's sure. I've, I've like, I guess over the years I've gotten better at like separating some of their fans from the music itself. And I, those God, the first three records, like, um, fucking under the table and dreaming i still uh i'll listen to that album any day of the week warehouse is still one of my favorite things that they've ever made it's a great song absolutely so i'm curious and this is kind of it's funny because there's like three articles that we had read of yours over the last year or so that like really drew us to wanting to talk with you and one of them was your piece in NPR about Dave Matthews and kind of the journey you talked about and um, kind of where you were in terms of like confusion and frustration with the band at this point in time. For me, like I said earlier, like Busted Stuff was, that was the last album I really cared about from them. And even that felt Mm -hmm. like a, um, I don't know, like you said, like it, it wasn't as loose as the Lily White Sessions. It felt like they like kind of buttoned up this album and like made it like a half everyday, half Lily White Sessions record. Sure. And right around that time was when I got into Fish, and that was like that mm-hmm. next step for me. Um, and I'm curious, like, just based off of like all the writing that like we've read of yours, especially like your Dave Matthews fandom, did you ever have like a Fish period, or was that like just something you missed like on purpose or just like like just it like passed you by or what what what, was that ever like a part of like your listening i did not try to miss fish um oh a lot of my friends were into fish um and and into fish in ways that were really pivotal to their musical development uh and I tried to get into fish. I sort of deliberately tried. I went to some shows. I, I listened to records. I listened to, to bootlegs and, and some some official live releases. And I, I think I think the reason that I didn't get into fish, um, and I'm sure that fish fans will be like, "Dude, you're getting it wrong." Um, <laughs> when I say this, is that from from listening to the Dave Matthews band, um, I, th- I think there are a few ways you can go. And I got really interested in idea uh, versus technique. And right now, fish fans just groaned. Um, but, <laughs> but what I mean by that is 
that so, so my sort of arrow out of out of the Dave Matthews Band was the Dave Matthews Band into Neil Young, into Sonic Youth, into Tony Conrad, um, and Tony Conrad is um, Tony Conrad is a guy that sort of I guess the like most famous is is he named the Velvet Underground? He was John Kell's roommate. This bum named Lou Reed, um, no model named Lou Reed, moved in for a while. He named the Velvet Underground. Um, but but more importantly to me, more important to me, he was um, I think sort of the great underrated or overlooked minimalist composer of of of, of uh, 20th century music in the United States. Um, and when I heard his music, which I had heard because of Sonic Youth it really just sort of inspired my interest in, in noise um, and minimalism. And from there, you know, uh, heavy metal, uh, which is a weird, a weird path, I suppose. But kind of in that pathway, I kind of ran uh, tangentially to fish a lot. Mm-hmm. And there were often like songs that I would hear. I'm like, oh, this is a cool song, you know. Or this is a, a, a cool idea, or I would read about you know fishes festivals or their 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 ideas, um, and it was always interesting to me. But it never sort of crossed the it, it was never the main thing I was thinking about. Um, though it was often very close to the main thing I was thinking about. Um, so it's it's weird that's uh, it's a band that like I, that I almost tried to get into. Okay. But I think I was being pulled in such different ways that it wasn't, uh, it was never my main interest. So I, I don't think I would, so I would say I, I, I never went through a fish phase, but I probably went through a, a phase of trying to have fish phases, <laughs> if that makes sense. That does. And- um,
points, even if you had said uh, really positive things about, you know, your love for fish, fish fans would have uh, groaned no matter what. <laughs> it's just their name. Oh, man, totally. <laughs> so, like, so, like, a person who's a, a personal friend has been for a long time, um, and, and I think, uh, I don't even know if we're that different in age, but who I've considered kind of a mentor and I look up to is, is Jesse Giorno. Yeah. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. And, and Jesse knows a whole lot about fish, yeah. obviously. Um, but Jesse also raises the ire of more fish fans than I guess any other human alive. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so many of my friends and mentors and, you know, musicians that I, sort of came of age with were were fish fans and it just is never it's not even a thing i can pretend to to pose about like being like knowing a ton about it's just something that i kept missing um for for whatever reason i don't know if jesse i'm trying to think if he raises the ire of fish fans so much as he was was unduly smeared by a that fish book written by Park Puderbaugh a few years ago, which kind of obliquely accused him of writing a really bad review of the really, really, really bad Vegas 2004 shows. And caused fish to break up, right? Like, that's right. like the, the urban legend about Jesse is he's the guy that. The, yeah, the urban legend is that he was it's bullshit. by uh, the bassist and said, Thanks for breaking up my band. Um, no hard hey, feeling. I at least know the bassist name. So that's some cred. <laughs> there you go. There you go. We, we we would go on record here and say that they should have broken up after that Vegas run. It was uh, uh, probably the most embarrassing run I've ever seen for a band that I truly love. Um, huh. So I don't think he was wrong. Um, it was certainly levels of like Grateful Dead, Spring 95, very, very unprofessional. Obviously something was wrong. Sure. So, yeah, you know. It's no, interesting you talk about you know your arrow out of the Dave Matthews band because I I definitely I mean I was I was raised on like Neil Young Bruce Springsteen and U two and I discovered Dave Matthews band early high school and mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> kind of right around the time that Crash came out was that was I think the first album that I was old enough where I was buying CDs and I really connected with and I also I came from the Midwest so it wasn't like they they were still growing at that point in time, but um, sure. you know I remember listening to Dave Matthews and he really helped me to gain an appreciation for the singer songwriter, which led me back to Neil Young, helped me discover Bob Dylan and a bunch of other artists. But it's for me it was like <clears throat> um, jams off of like Two Step and Jimmy Thing that I listened to that I found really interesting that they would like just stretch this song out for sure. 10 to 19 minutes. And when I heard fish do it and they took mm-hmm. it in even different directions, that was the thing that latched latched onto me. So it's interesting. And I think it speaks to the, you know, overall value of the band and the overall power that they hold that they can push people in so many different directions. Like I ended up absolutely in underground years later oddly enough because of fish covering the velvet underground um yeah so that's funny (laughs) i think that's i think that's totally the power of of it and i think that's you know i i think that's why that music you know with or without you know own or not on its own merits 
I think that's why that music deserves um, pretty serious consideration uh, right. at this point because it did call so many people to go one way or the other. And, you know, sort of no matter where you went after that, you know, it's a family tree, I mean, essentially. Um, and, I, you know, I think a lot of people have been embarrassed by, you know, that trunk of their tree for a while, if you will, um, because it's corny. I mean, right. It's, you know, it's, there's a lot of corny, bad things to say about the Dave Matthews band, but I think for a lot of people and, you know, Riley, Riley grew up in, in Rockford, Illinois and, you know, an hour away from Chicago kind of separated from its culture and music and its scene, so to speak. And that music sort of served as a bridge. And I grew up as a kid in the country of North Carolina and that music to me sort of opened up the idea of what music could be. And I think you're saying the same thing and all those arrows can zig and zag in a million different ways. Um, but none of it is something we should be ashamed of. Right. Right. If you, you know, as long as you're not still being like crash is the greatest song written and I'll fucking defend it until the day I die. <laughs> Cause it's a great song. Maybe line or grace, not crash. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean the way the way the you know, I've recently been listening back to that song and like the way the rhythm of that song kind of increases and picks up as the song builds. I mean, it's really beautiful, but it's not the greatest song ever written. Right. Um, it was so, good in Lady Bird. That was yeah, uh, it, was, it was great in Lady Bird because it accelerates in the back. Um, right. Anyway, yeah. So, so just shifting gears a bit, will um, of course, one of uh. One of the other essays that you had written recently was um, about. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, just listen to what's going on there. Was uh, was about artists curated festivals. So sure. with such just like a focus in the music industry on live music, I mean, do you see like large scale festivals like the Coachellas? Now here we have uh, like Governor's Ball and Panorama. I mean, you think those are like a necessary evil or do you see uh, like the artist curated festivals being the future? I mean, I know one that really comes to mind was the one um, that the National just put on down in Cincinnati that I considered going to. Wasn't able to sure, get out yeah, there. Um... Yeah, I, uh, I don't even know if I would say that the right word is evil. Um, I think that the I think that you know large festival culture is simply a symptom of the time we're living in, um, and I don't think it's I don't think it's an accident that the large festivals of of this country happened somewhat in conjunction with the rise of our accessibility to the internet and Napster okay. and then iTunes and the iPod. And, you know, I think they are sort of smorgasbords where instant access to most of the things you want is there. Um, right. And I think that's great. I like, you know, I, I started a music festival um, that still exists in North Carolina called Hopscotch. Um, and I, right. I like, I like music festivals um, I, because they're they're a great way to see so much stuff in a really short amount of time and have interesting experiences. Um, and that can go for something really small or it can go for something really big. But I think the problem that has developed in music festivals 
is that there's a formula there. And the formula can be uh, observed and copied and, and, you know, sold with infinite slight variations. And that's fine. Uh, but I think there can be something more interesting and that sort of as listeners and fans of music, we should hope for something more interesting. Right. Right. And I think that's what artist curated festivals. Tell me if you can't hear me. Cause I'm still trying to find a power outlet. You're no, good. Uh, it's good. Oh, I think I found one. <laughs> I'm at a used car dealership. Here we go. I'm about to plug in. Um, I think that uh, that we should demand things that are more interesting. We should demand that festivals can deliver experiences that uh, we wouldn't have at an ordinary concert hall. That, you know, if I go to see um, the National, for instance, like, like you mentioned, um, at if I go see the National at the National in Richmond, Virginia, then the National are going to play their songs. That's cool. That's what I'm here for. Right. But if I go to a festival where, let's say, 50 different bands that I really like or 50 different bands are playing and 30 of them are bands I really like and 20 of them are bands that I either don't know much about or I don't really care about, um, maybe something interesting and unexpected will happen. Um, or maybe... Or maybe what I will learn from that festival is uh, something more about the way my favorite band thinks uh, or what they believe in artistically or politically or socially or, or emotionally. And I think that's the hope of an artist curated festival, um, which is that, A, you can have experiences that aren't just about commerce and that aren't necessarily easily sellable. And that you can have experiences that allow you to connect with music, you really, with art you really love. What did uh, you think of, um, I guess, the one up in Wisconsin this past week in Eau Claire's with the one? Um, yeah, uh, it, it was. Yeah. So, so one of the friends I mentioned who was really into fish is Justin Vernon. Sure. Um, we lived together in North Carolina for a time. Along with Brad Cook, who's his manager, who's in Megaphone, with Phil Cook and um, Joe Westerland. They were all big Fish fans. They were kind of the ones that were like, hey, you should, you gotta listen to Fish more. It's like, yeah, Tony Conrad. Um, (laughs) And. trying to go to Eau Claire for I've been trying to go to this festival for, for years um, and this year it seemed like we maybe would make it um, but we didn't for, for various reasons uh, but I think what Justin is doing is, is kind of beautiful um, you know 
I, th I think what he's doing and, and what he and Aaron are doing together and, you know, with various partners is trying to create an atmosphere where what we embrace is music and art. And, you know, it's precious. I think it's, you know, precious by nature. And I think they realize that it's precious and that it seems kind of pie in the sky. But that's fine. Um, I kind of think that what they're doing is exercising privilege in some way. Mm -hmm. um, and exercising privilege in a way that I think we should all exercise privilege more, which is recognizing that, like, I'm a rich person. Uh, not even rich. I'm a person who's made money and has been successful making music. So I have the ability to exert some influence on the market and to say I can, I can envision the market in which I want to exist and in which I want to make art. And, you know, that is by nature going to invoke criticism. I have a friend, another dear friend, who calls Justin's festival glamping, um, which I think is pretty, pretty funny, but I think is ultimately pretty reductive. Um, and I think it's more about trying to create a spirit where, whereby people can share a moment and can create a moment and then share it. Um, and I don't really know of a, I mean, you guys are fish fans. What better moment is there? Right. Like then when, totally. then when 20,000 people or whatever, you know, then 20 people are watching something and freaking out together. I mean, that's an incredible thing. That's like, that's the, that's the spirit that, that I want to, it, it's gotta be great to just watch a band in the field of, 50,000 people and be like, yeah, I know this song. This is a cool song. I like this song. That's fine. Um, but I think I would rather spend my money to freak out over something that, like, I had no idea would exist. And it's just a sheerly magnetic moment. And I'll be honest, I have not, I've barely looked at my phone this week. So I don't really know what happened at that festival in Wisconsin, which mm -hmm. I'm ashamed to admit. Oh. I think there were some. Yeah. I think there were some Gillian Welch covers, which I've heard about. Yeah. Um, and I know that my friend Nick Sanborn and my friend Chris Rosenau uh, improvised together, which I'm excited to hear at some point. Um, but I don't. I don't know what else happened. But the spirit of it, I think, is absolutely right. The well, National played in the round. I think. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's they had cool. Sharon. I think like Sharon Bedden. Oh yeah, Sharon was there. Yep. Julian Julian Baker came up and um, she played. I think she played one of her songs and then segued it into Fake Empire. And my brother cool. was at the show and said that she started. She sang the first verse of Fake Empire and then the band came in and it was just like this oh, kind geez. of surprise moment that um, yeah you've never heard that song live played like that. And I think it's that's the, great. Yeah, I think it's the, the big debate of, like, you know, I, I'm in full agreement. I mean, I've been to a lot of music festivals. I've been to everything from, you know, small, uh, like, local festivals to, like, your midsize, like, Pitchfork to, like, Lollapalooza and Bonnaroo. And, you know, I think the challenge is that the large ones, even the midsize ones to a certain degree, you, you get bands that play, like, a festival set. You know, you want them to play something oh, yeah. really special, but they know how many eyes are on that on them at that weekend, and you know, like how many new potential listeners there are, how many people within the industry are probably there, how many other artists are there that are you know just 
watch, you know, how many, and, and in a place like Pitchfork, how many writers are there and what impact that can have. And so they want to compact everything about them that's special into 45 minutes or, you know, an sure. hour, which in some cases tends to make an artist less special. You know, I know I've seen mm-hmm. a lot of festival sets where I kind of walked away from a band I love feeling like I just saw like, you know, an Austin City Limits set that didn't necessarily surprise me in any sort of a way. Sure. Um, and I definitely agree. I think the, and I feel like this year for Eau Claire, like the big goal was, can we draw a massive crowd without telling anyone what the lineup is? Yeah. And I, and I feel like from a success standpoint, you know, you definitely got a lot of like Justin Vernon's Rolodex basically, like here's the people mm-hmm. that I know, <laughs> let's get them, you know, on board. But I think at the same sense, and I saw pictures and videos from it, I wasn't there, but it seemed to really emphasize, like there was a picture I saw of the Dessner brothers playing in what looked like a manufactured treehouse, where one of them mm-hmm. was on one side of it, the other one was like up a ladder, and they were just playing their guitars together. I didn't hear what they were mm-hmm. playing, but I can only imagine they were improvising together. I, I feel like that spirit of it, where you basically take the music and incorporate it with the artwork that always kind of seems separate to me at a lot of festivals and those like kind of mesh together. That only is a positive for music fans going forward. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I think that any of those people would recognize the benefit of in, in talking to them and reporting all those people that you mentioned would recognize the sort of benefit of large music festivals, you know, the ones that have, Mm, to be reductive about it, a big payday. Right. Um, you know, those those are the festivals that help pay the crew. Those are the festivals that help keep the band in business. Totally. Um, and those are the festivals that I think hopefully allow artists to follow their fancy. And if following their fancy means creating a community of people to come together and, you know, host a few thousand strangers who become friends for a weekend, why not? Um I think that's a pretty good money losing endeavor, uh, and is and is sympathetic with the way I. Uh, it's consistent with the way I think about music. Um, I think about art, uh, especially especially the live concert. Um, I I think there's also a benefit to sort of those festival sets. You know, I think there are a lot of people who, you know, people have jobs and people have kids and people have pets and they have hobbies and there everyone isn't as devoted to listening to every new record every Friday or, or whatever. <laughs> and so, like, if you can go stand in a field and be like, yep, yeah, I like this band, I'm going to check them out on Monday or nah, fuck this, I'm not into it. That's fine. Like, that's totally, totally that's totally useful. And all festivals don't have to be the same. So I think the real point of an artist curated festival is is offering that alternative, offering offering something different than the slick. Like, here are the 150 bands that are going to play in this big field on these five stages. Deal with it. Um, so it doesn't have to be for everyone, really, and that's fine. Um, I think that's I think it's an important alternative to have, and I, I don't think that every festival should or would become that. I just think it's a really important option to exist. Uh, and, and I think, you know, Justin's thing or the Nationals thing or 
um, Chance the Rapper's thing a few years ago, or so you know. And and obviously this you know, this obviously has existed. I got some criticism with that story from fish fans, no doubt. Oh, why? Because not talking about the great talk about fish. Or, right? Yeah, because I, I don't. <laughs> and, and I'll say this clearly: um, I don't think that the fish festivals are in the same spirit. Um, hmm. I think the fish festivals are most often, you guys tell me if I'm wrong, um, please. I think the fish festivals more often than not are mostly like uh, oftentimes fish playing almost all the shows or fish playing sort of the bulk of the shows and their buddies, like I guess Del McCurry's played a few and, you know, like, like those folks existing more on the periphery or stepping in at some points. I think these other festivals that, I'm talking about are yeah the fish festivals are just entirely fish I know yeah, they're, um, they're fish. yeah they are yeah. fish festivals they're basically they're... big fish shows yeah, yeah the fish exactly. festivals right yeah right I'm glad that this distinction is clear to you guys because yeah, I was yeah. so I was like oh yeah they're totally different ideas um you know I think that 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 sort of uh chance the rapper Boney Bear Martin Medeski Wood and Friends thing is a really good way to go to allow people to experience unique moments. Right. And, you know, I think that that idea is totally um, a idea that has existed in the jam band scene for a long time and, and expanded. One of the pieces of that story that didn't uh, survive for, for, I think, a, a few valid reasons was about the Horde Festival. Um, mm. There was a long mm. section about, not a long section, but a pretty meaty section about the Horde Festival. I think there might have been a quote from John Popper that made it, but, you know, um, I think that, that what they did was totally part of what happens now. Um, and the spirit of sharing, you know, they had this second stage where, you know, the bands would play their festival set, sure, but then they would hop on the second stage and who knows what would happen. Mm. You know, Neil Young and John Popper could be playing uh uh, John Hartford song, you know, who, who knows? Um, and I think that is the spirit that, that, that should exist where collaboration can happen and surprises can happen. And I think that's what we want to get from festivals. Um, not to be too, you know, Golden Gate Park about it, but I think we want experiences. Um, and, you know, I'm down to pay for that. What kind of festivals exist for people who want to see a lot of metal at once. I know there's Maryland Death Fest. I'm just trying to think of ones um, other than that. There's there's a really good festival um, run by. Oh man, this is something I'm totally blanking. Is it Gilead Media? Gilead Media runs a good festival in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Okay. Um, and Gilead's a great label. Uh, a lot of metal. Otherwise, let's see. They're not a lot right now. Um, they're really there. Oh yeah. There's a psycho fest in Las Vegas and this year's lineup is really good. Um, and I'm th- kind of thinking about flying to it. I don't know. We'll see it in September. Um, but you know, it's, it's pretty niche. Um, metals popularity, I think is, you know, th- they're always like Carolina Rebellion or whatever the monster, whatever, whatever. Rock on the Range, is. Carolina Rebellion, the kind yeah, of those, like the those, ones that mix like the '80s metal bands with like Disturbed and Papa Roach, and then you'll have yeah, it's, it's like the Scorpions yeah. and Stone Sour and some Rob Zombie project and Baby Metal. Right. I, I went to one of those <laughs> last year and it was really confusing. 
Um, <laughs> it was fun, but it was confusing. So those kinds of things exist, but um, I don't know. I've had I've had better times watching music, uh, but Psychofest uh, in Vegas. There's also this fe- new festival in Tennessee that Sleep is playing this year with some some pretty good bands. I think like Windhand is playing. Um, that's in maybe September October, but I think metal is sort of being folded into these larger festival right, right. configurations. Because I think um, because Sleep's playing Scott. Uh, I'm sorry, Sleep is playing Hopscotch this year, right? Sleep playing Hopscotch. Yep, they played okay. I think in year four, and um, which is my last year, and I, I guess they're playing year. I guess this is nine. Um, yeah. Okay. One thing I wanted to ask you about, just regarding you know festivals, is this kind of ties into we had a we had a really good conversation with. Um, Stephen Hyden shortly after his book Twilight of the Gods came out and one of the mm-hmm. aspects of that book that really attracted me to it was um, <clears throat> this idea that classic rock was almost leaving the white male hero behind and you talked a lot in your essay about the impact of these festivals being led by people of color, by women and you know there's so much more diversity nowadays in rock music and in popularized music than there was even 10, 20, 30 years ago. Do you see these kind of artist curated festivals as like the best path forward for, you know, kind of underserved populations from a musical standpoint to like really kind of be in their own element to gain notoriety, to really have like the freedom to create? Like, do you see that being any part of it? I want to make sure I understand the question. Um, Cause it's certainly a media one. Do I, do I think that like, these sorts of festivals are the best way for those underserved demographics to have this microphone, so to speak? Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't think physical spaces are, are. I mean, I think hopefully in the future the answer is yes. Okay. Um, but I think that something about those festivals um, and those experiences is that they require a lot of capital, um, mm-hmm. and they require a lot of social capital. They require a lot of financial capital. They require a lot of political capital, and um, I don't think that we have as a bunch of white dudes essentially uh, allowed that always to happen. Um, and I hope that in the future it does. And I think it's sort of incumbent upon us to make sure it does and to bring more voices to the table. And I think there are people who are doing that work um, and they deserve all the support and platforms that they can get from, from people who already produce those vessels. Um, I mean, I think the Internet is sort of, you know, the Internet, which would be not this physical space that we're talking about, right. is kind of the platform you're talking about. Uh, that makes sense. Because because I think that that, you know, requires less of those. Certainly requires um, some capital, but less. Uh, so I'm hoping that that is something that over the next five to ten years we really see happen. And I think is 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 important to see uh, for people to support. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's the I don't think it's the great redeemer or anything. I think it's the great redeemer in the sense that like it gives artists more control over how they present their music and how they enjoy a festival experience. 
but I still think if you look at the numbers and the, the sort of divide, it's a mostly uh, male and especially white male uh, demographic in charge of me. Right, right. demographic what do you think of the rock and roll hall of fame oh man oh you've been on my twitter uh <laughs> rock and roll hall of fame was was really odd um yeah it's um i was very excited to go i'd never been um and it was a confusing experience um okay i'll say that you know it there's so much cool stuff in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you got to give it that. Like the first thing to say about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is, you will go there, and no matter who you are, you will probably see something where you go, "Oh, holy shit, that's a real life physical object that exists." Like you'll watch Michael Jackson's glove rotate in a cylinder very slowly, or you'll see Mother Maybell's guitar, or you'll see um, salvage suitcase where Howlin' Wolf kept his money. Exactly, or you'll see like salvage banks. bits of of Otis Redding's plane, or you'll see Kim Gordon's bass, or you see all these things. But then, but then it's like there's this, like this overwhelming vibe, but it's also a guitar center mixed with like a a really weird consignment store, and like you could be like, how much is that one? Um, and so there's that vibe, and there's also like this weird, and I, I don't quite know how to parse this. There's this weird impulse in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to sort of tell the larger story of music in the United States, mm. and so you're trying to tell, you're trying to you're trying to say a little bit about hip hop. You're trying to little say a little bit about jazz. You're trying to say a little bit about country, a little bit about the blues, but they're all subservient to rock and roll. Right. And it's almost like guys just be like, you know, here's a sign that has these other things, and here's rock and roll. Um, it's just such a weird, a weird format for trying to share a unified story that kind of doesn't exist. Like they try to make a unified story by not making right. a unified. And I'm, I've been really trying to parse this idea. Um, of, of what they're trying to say. And I don't think it's totally successful. Like, for instance, I think you could probably go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame if you knew nothing about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or rock and roll. And you could leave and say, rock and roll was invented by Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> but there was also this guy named Robert Johnson and no one knows anything about him. <laughs> the end. Right. And yeah, also well, there were like... And also, there were five people inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year, but they get like a they get like half of a floor. That's it. Um, yeah, when I went I back in 2013, I had a very I mean, I kind of went expecting to hate it. I mean, yeah. my wife spent like three and a half hours there just because. Yeah. If you're huge music fans, there's so much minutia. Like there was like an Alice in Chains set list for 1992. I'm like, holy totally. shit! And it's a it, kind of like you said. I kind of got the feeling it was very. Like Jan Winner, David Frick, take oh, on yeah. rock. Yeah, take on rock and roll. Like opening up a Rolling Stone album guide and starting from the beginning. But I certainly yeah. wasn't bored. I mean, I think it's such a hard thing to quantify. It probably does as good a job as as one could hope. I mean, I, I, 
You know, I would pro- I would almost be willing to agree with with that. Okay. Except I'll say this, um, and this is sort maybe this is what spoiled me. If you go to the top floor of the new Smithsonian Museum of African American History in Washington, it is the best music museum I've ever seen in the United States. Okay. It's incredible. And and to me, it is what these museums should represent. It is um it's dynamic, and it's physical. There are these interactive parts, but you also see you also see these uh you know you see wardrobes, you see instruments, you see you see records, but they're all with such context and they're all with such power. It's not like the dude from the Moody Blues gave us this thing, so we put it in the museum. <laughs> Deal with it. It's like this is here for this the reason. Night from the nights in white satin. Right? Yeah, and and I think that's the thing about the thing about that museum about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is it's like. Someone gave us to this. Someone gave us this, so here it is. And it's like, okay, I don't care. Um, but but this, but the Smithsonian, and you know, it has the benefit, obviously, of being in the Smithsonian. Um, but it's really purposeful and it's really deliberate. And everything you see, you're like, I get what I get. Why this is here, I can take a few different meanings away from it, but I also get the purpose of it. And it's really intentional. Um, and that was that was incredible to me. Like, I sort um, of felt that way about seeing the Country Music Hall of Fame in Nashville, which I think does a better mm-hmm. job than um, like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in terms of presenting like the origins of country and covering things like bluegrass and Texas swing and the Carter family sure. and whatnot. That was uh, if you haven't been there, that place is great. As well. Yeah, no, no, it is it is amazing. Yeah, and I think that's sort of I think the onus of museums is is almost not to disprove present like a panoply of things but it's also to tell us why it's presenting things and to say here's the story here's the narrative we're trying to share and build and here's why we think that narrative is significant mm-hmm. and i think the rock and roll hall of fame kind of misses the mark in that respect by trying to do too much with too much um well it kind of just, just so much that you care about it when yeah you should be yeah, able exactly. to walk into a museum without much care for what the subject is and walk out feeling like you are like invigorated by it to a certain degree. Cause you've learned that origin, you've learned that story, you've learned all the pieces that make it whole. It's like being a Christian and going to summer Jesus camp and leaving and being like, <laughs> fuck yeah, Jesus rules. Right, exactly. um, and then being like, ah, I don't know. Yeah. There's, there are other religions. When um, I went to Jewish youth group camp, it was more about Jewish kids smoking weed and listening to the dead in the woods. There was like, man, there, I'm I'm envious. There was some religion, not really. Yeah, it's a different kind of gospel. Very very different. <laughs> um, the uh, I guess five like favorite metal albums so far, about 2018. Oh man, this is the worst kind of question for me. Uh, I don't know. I don't have an answer. Um, <laughs> is that okay? I don't have an answer. Okay. Um, That's perfectly okay. Was, yeah, people ask me for album recommendations, and I recently realized what, but while talking to a friend that that's just not how my brain works. He's like, that's okay. You have, she's like a therapist, and she's like, that that's how my, my brain doesn't work that way either. It's funny. Um, I, I did uh, – we, when we talked to Stephen, and I did recently an interview with a, a keyboardist and – it's kind of something we, we ask everyone just because the whole point of our podcast is to take people from fish 
and try to introduce them to this whole widespread mm. realm of music based on if you like this improv- improvisational segment that we're featuring for the week. Um, yeah. And uh, in both situations, um, Hayden and Joel Cummins of uh, Umphreys McGee, when I when mm-hmm. we asked them what their favorite records of the year were, they both immediately had to go to their Spotify recently played <laughs> and you know for for people that write about music for people that play music professionally i totally get it like you guys have like so much going on in your head you know from a I, musical standpoint that like categorizing it in the moment it's got to be tough i think i could tell you five records i really love that aren't metal okay if that's okay right, that's is that perfect. okay Dude. yeah that's perfect um man I, i'm totally just standing outside my van house thing uh so i <laughs> so I'm, i might get the names wrong um but i'm gonna try uh so there's damien dorado's record the horizon just the horizon just laughed i think okay. um i think the horizon so damien's been writing songs for really releasing records for 20 years now yeah. um and uh richard swift made his last three records he didn't make this one because he was mm. um i don't think his health was up to snuff so to speak um and uh, sidebar: Anyone listening who is not listening to Richard Smith, Richard Smith's records should should check him out. Um, he's a tremendous we force. Totally, totally back that up. Um, who, who died not long ago. Um, yeah. But Damien's Damien's record is is I think the best record he's ever released, and I think wow. probably the best singer songwriter set I've, I've heard this year. Um, wow. So there's that one. Um, Mr. Percy Faith is your masterpiece complete I'm in dire need of curing this headache There are riots in the streets And we're still not on the moon And I hear that you've been taken from the airwaves I think maybe the Fish fans. And this probably isn't one of my favorite records of the year, but maybe like Fish fans could could rally behind sort of the synthesis of of, of music that's happening on a record um, by a guy named Z, who goes by the name of Zill and Arter, um, who's um, uh, a European African American. Okay. Um, and he, he was challenged on 4chan a few years ago to make um, music that combined black metal with black folk music. And so what he did was mix um, black folk songs and black metal. And the new record is really inspiring and incredible and difficult and imperfect. Um, but I you remember that for Pitchwork, right? I did. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, All right. So I think that's a good one to check out. Somebody 
What else? Uh, scanning through my head here. There's so many records I'm going to buy. Why didn't I say that? <laughs> um, I can only think of the records I just pitched. Um, another one would be, well, the sleep record. You know. All right. Okay. Let's go with the sleep. Y'all talk about sleep on this show? Uh, we haven't, but we love sleep. I certainly love sleep. All right. So Science is fan, great. A rumor that I hear is that you like weed. Sorry mm. for the reductive rumor, but I've heard that. <laughs> um, well, what's great about sleep is that they make the act of smoking marijuana sound like some incredible life-affirming yeah. quest that make it sound divine, way more awesome than it is. <laughs> it's a divine right. right. Yeah. It's, it makes it, yeah, you're going, you're going to walk through the desert and you're going to find Nazareth. Do it. So, so, so Sleep the Scientist is their first record in uh, 20 years, 19, 19 years, 21 years. Um, yeah. And it's great. They, they've gotten better. They've, they're, they're the rare band who reunited and got better because they spent the last 20 years playing in different bands. Um, so The Scientist is a really incredible record. And they're um, funny. So, oh, the, the record is hilarious. I know that, One you, record that you wrote about a record that we recently featured. Actually, okay. an episode that we're releasing tomorrow, uh, we featured it in our new album recommendation. Um, this was an album that Dave told me was like my wheelhouse, and I listened to it, and I went to see a review of it, and it was written by you, the Tangents album, New Bodies, which is just fucking mind-blowing. I love that record so much. Oh, yeah, it's a great record. It's yeah. really good. Um you know, so I, I write a lot about instrumental music, um, and um, I think maybe something that that I love to hear in instrumental music is uh, talked a little bit about ideas earlier, but I love to hear the articulation of an emotion or story. Um, it's not easier to share an emotion or a story with words, but it is, a, it can be a little more obvious. I don't want to detract from singer songwriters or from songwriters in general, 
Um, but the tools are a little more available and obvious. Um, and so the tangents record, I think, is a really good piece of instrumental music that um, they've been a really incredible band yeah. for a minute now. Um, but now they're sort of getting to the core of what they're trying to say and saying these things that you can sort of live inside and, and have a feeling about. record i mean if you love like those books records or if you love fortet records um there's a record i wrote about as well earlier this year um from a group called entourage who were sort of a, a collective uh 34 years ago that made a few records that fortet actually sampled um a lot of that music reminds me and there's a new box set of their music on the, the great little Tompkins square um their music reminds me a little bit of that, but it definitely has more of a sort of dynamic uh, sensibility, a modern dynamic sensibility, more rhythm. Um, but it's it's instrumental music that articulates an emotion as well as um, an idea. And and I would say the last record that I would really feel like I would be really neglectful if I did not mention um, is the new Mary Lattimore LP. Oh, um, she's the harpist. Mary, Mary Lattimore's a harpist. Um, a but the, the amazing thing about the new Mary Mary's new record is that she doesn't just play the harp. She sings a little bit. Mm -hmm. She plays some guitar, and she plays some keyboards. So she kind of you know she's been known as a harpist. She's played with Thurston Moore, and she's played with Sharon Van Etten. She played with a lot of people. Um, and, and isn't she on tour? With Ice Age, which is just a fucking awesome bill. Yeah, she is on tour with Ice Age, which is an awesome and crazy bill. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, this record is, again, sort of similar to the Tangents record. It has a lot to say um, about the way it feels, about the world. Um, and, you know, you can sort of imagine yourself living in these songs or thinking about the meaning of these songs or why they were written and what they have to offer. Um it's just and it's it, and it's also just really beautiful music. Um, so that's a record that I would really recommend, and that I think, you know, she, her her credentials are impeccable if that's what you're into. Um, you know, like mm -hmm. she's she's she has an incredible resume, and she has an, a really good uh, catalog of solo recordings. But she is a person who I think this year has found um, kind of what she's been looking for in some way.
she has a new record also with Meg Bayer from Espers and from uh, Heron Oblivion um, that is coming out. I don't know if it's been announced, but it probably will be by the time this is up. Um, she has a new record with, with Meg um, that's incredible as well. It's uh, voice and guitar and harp, and it's awesome. Is she the singer um, from Heron Oblivion? Yep. Yep, and she was okay. in Espers as well. Okay. Espers are a great band. If, if folks haven't checked out Espers, a great band from Philadelphia involved yeah. in the quote-unquote freak folk scene. Um, but yeah. yeah Her- well, um, was it Heron Oblivion's got, um, what's his name, Ethan Miller from Howlin' yep. Rain, Comets on Fire. Comets on Fire, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. He's, a, he's great, too. They're very good. Yep, Excellent. absolutely. Cool. Cool. That's some great stuff. But yeah, we um, when we talked about that Tangents record, it was in an episode where we featured um, <clears throat> a Mark McGuire song from uh, Oh yeah, Living with Yourself. That I would say is another instrumental record that just tells a complete story. Really showcases like some just dynamic feeling and some dynamic like this big journey that he was on in terms of going back through his whole past. And something yep. that I think he does really well through his music, and definitely found a connection within that. I, I, I definitely yeah, I think Mark side is side. Mark is definitely someone who's done something similar to both Mary and uh, and Tangents, I think, which is you know all like incredible technicians who have over the years developed this sort of personal vocabulary for for sharing something more. Um, and I think that's really rewarding. I think as a fan of uh, instrumental or wordless music. Uh, a lot of times you'll find someone you're like, wow, that person's really good at what they're doing. Um, I'm not taking a lot away from it. Um, and so right. whenever someone is able to develop that as well, it's it's really a gift, and I think they have the tools to sort of share share it. So, well, yeah, those are records that, I'd recommend. It's a challenge that we see in the larger kind of jam band community that, like, Fish is a part of, and it's a lot of the reason why Dave and I do this podcast is there's a lot of bands out there that will play 20, 30-minute improvisational pieces that don't really mm-hmm. tell a story. They're kind of just, yeah. you take mm-hmm. a lead, you take a lead, and, you know, that's super fun for a lot of people. Uh, I'm not really, I'm not knocking it. I just, um, I, I, I tend to look at, if I'm going to look for instrumental music, if I'm going to look for something that's going to take me on kind of a journey, I want something that tends to have some deliberateness to it, some intentionality behind it without, yeah. you know, really saying something, you know, without, without like, vote, you know, verbally saying something. Um, I, th- I think you're, I think you're always going to be able to find a great player. Um, but finding, being able to find someone who's able to take that playing and, and, um, make you feel something or give you the opportunity to feel something is a more special experience. Totally. Um, so, yeah. So kind of, you know, one of the last big things we wanted to talk with you about was you wrote a really wonderful essay that we're going to share when we post this, um, about kind of traveling and, um, this experience you were having where you were finding yourself in parts of the country and in the Yukon where you had no Wi-Fi connection and uh, you were putting on CDs and you were kind of rediscovering listening to music through CDs. And um, 
and I, I was curious, you know, as, as you're um, continuing you know, on the road, have you found any new albums that have come to light kind of since publishing that article just through the medium of CDs that have really kind of struck you in a way that they had it before? I think this is sort of a different answer. Um, uh, we got into Nebraska today. We're in Omaha right now. We've just gotten to Nebraska. And, like, this is totally cheesy. Um, but a record that I've been looking forward to for a year for listening to in a very specific setting is Nebraska. Um, mm-hmm. And so I don't know, actually, because um, one of the things that I've really learned on this trip is that your sort of conceptions of your country, of the United States, or wherever you are probably, are pretty different um, from the reality of it. Right. And something I really love, um, one of my favorite parts of this country, are the Badlands. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the thing about the Badlands is they're not really in Nebraska. There are, there are Nebraskan Badlands, uh, but the, the Badlands that Springsteen references very specifically kind of only exist in part. Um, I mean, they exist, but they're not like the Badlands that like you see all the time um, in photos. Or you know, the Badlands National Park, of course, is above Nebraska in South Dakota. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I sort of had less of a frame of reference for before this trip. So I'm really interested to hear this record, which you know, of course, has Atlantic City, which is a place that we've been to on this trip, um, and reference the Badlands and references so many things about this country. I'm excited to probably hear that tomorrow or the next day at night, hopefully, and sort of see how I feel about it. Um, it's a record that like a lot of people I heard the first time when I was a teenager, it was like, man, this is like spooky and affecting music. Um, and you know, it's, it's always been something that's in my head, but I probably don't listen to that often. So I'm, I'm curious to see how I connect with it while in Nebraska. Um, I've never been in Nebraska until today. It's one of the few states I've never been to. And I have very little conception of what it's actually like. Right. Um, so I'm kind of curious to see what that conception is squared with the album itself, which, you know, of course, has very little to do with the state of Nebraska Except in your mind, when you hear it when you're a kid, you're like, that entire album is about Nebraska, and it's not. Right. Um, <laughs> so, so I sort of think the answer that answer is a little bit unwritten. And there are other records, obviously, I've listened to, but that's the one that right now is like, what? How is this going to feel? Like, what? What do I walk away from this adventure, this experience, thinking about this music that I've known for 25 years or whatever? Um, so that, yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm excited about in that realm right now is is sort of hearing the way that my understanding of something reckons with my past understanding of something reckons with like the on the ground reality uh, in the moment. Yeah, it's funny. I have a very distinct memory of that album. <clears throat> I moved out of Missoula, Montana, about ten years ago this upcoming fall, and. Uh, drove back to my home in Chicago before moving overseas and then living around the U.S. for a bit before finally setting, settling here in Denver. And um, I remember listening to that record 
I left Missoula at like five o'clock in the morning and I was pretty, I knew I needed to leave. I knew that that was like that chapter of my life was over, but I was pretty beat up about it. You know, I didn't want it to be over. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I threw that album on as the sun was rising. I was driving through these kind of canyons on Highway Mm -hmm. 90 going east and, that like I still like have distinct memories of every song sure. on that record, um, and that has nothing to do with Nebraska. And I wasn't being chased by a state trooper, and I wasn't. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But but it, it it it's one of those albums that like you can put it in a thousand different places around the country. Um, but I think it's cool, yeah. you know, listening to it in the state that gave it to, gave it its name. I, I like that. Yeah, I, I don't know the last time I heard it. Um... You know, I, I sort of hear it in my, I play it in my head every now and again, but I don't know the last time I actually put it on and listened to it. So I'm really curious to see how that goes. kind of to that point um you know you you talked about traveling around america you see the country in a very different way than you think about america when you're not in it you're not traveling kind of this last like year and a half you've been on the road since what like last june did you say uh last april last april okay um obviously you're on the road in a very interesting and contentious and kind of bombastic time in the country's history. Um, what's kind of your overall impression of our country right now and what's it been like being on the road as kind of conflicts continue to just like simmer and simmer and it feels like they're going to boil over, you know, at kind of any moment? Yeah. Um, hmm. It feels in some ways like um, boiling over is not the worst thing that would happen for us. Yeah. Um, that maybe we've got some things to really figure out and that we treat as not pressing enough to let them boil over. Um, that we really need to have a lot of intense, long conversations. And I don't know what form those conversations take. Um, but we have got a lot of problems and sort of driving around doesn't hasn't obscured those problems i think the one thing it has made me realize and tina and i talk about this a lot um you find a lot of faith in america or the united states of america but it's hard to sometimes find faith in americans Mm, mm. um sometimes you're very disappointed in the things people say or the way they react to anything different 
uh, and their their sort of idea of what America should be. Um, and I think that we have sort of stumbled into this incredible wealth of land and beauty and uh, possibility, and we are fucking it up um, in a lot of ways. And I think we got to get a we are way behind that, and we have to figure out how to catch up with that idea. And we have to, um, and I don't, I don't know what that looks like. Uh, I don't know, I don't know if it's getting behind a politician or getting behind ourselves or starting over or, you know, I, I don't know. Um, but I think the thing that really occurs to us is that, uh, we are all longing for like this myth of the American dream. It's very much a myth and we're, you know, we, we hope that it becomes real, but we haven't really figured out how to make it available to people. Um, and I think that something that we have, something that's true and troublesome is that we sort of look at, the rights that we think we have and been given and we're not willing to compromise on those um, or or understand that they have limits and that can be to the detriment of our, our fellow resident or citizen um, and I think that's kind of what we have to do is understand that this country and it's hope that you know I mean if you read the Gettysburg Address <laughs> You know, which I read again in Gettysburg for the first time in decades this year, and I've since read again and again. It's sort of the, the question that was there when Abraham Lincoln wrote it, sort of as like the opening act for a speaker whose name I can never remember um, on the way to Gettysburg, which is that this is a t this isn't like a foregone conclusion that America works. Um, it's a test and like a, an idea and an experiment on that idea. And we constantly have to question it and fix it. And I think that's maybe what after World War II, especially after Vietnam, we somehow stopped doing is saying we got to make this better. We just said, well, it works. Um, and it isn't working. Um, I think we have a lot of questions to answer. And I think this year in some way was um, – we sort of set out to do it after Donald Trump was elected. We thought about moving to Canada, but we decided to go out on the road instead. Um, mm. And it was in a sense to discover sort of uh, hopefulness in America. And I think we found a lot of that, but we also found a lot of worry um, in the in the way that there's a lot of work to be done and it's overwhelming. Uh, but I think that's a reason to engage with it. Um, rather than run away from it, which is, I think, is the, the decision we've made. Yeah, I think it's, um, I think there's a lot of truth in that, and I think there's a lot of, um, yeah, kind of the uncertainty and the worry that people share is, I'm sure that you've seen this, I think it's on both sides, you know, I think it's, um, uh, I don't know, it's hard to grapple with right now. I know that, um, yeah. From my end, you know, what you and Tina are doing, your guys' messages, your guys' ability to kind of communicate your travels is super inspiring and I think speaks to kind of that ongoing American curiosity 
for mm -hmm. who we are and trying to like peel back the pieces, even the kind of ugly pieces of um, what we've done wrong here in this country and what we've also done right and what we've gotten right and what you know our best intentions are. And I think you guys have really, I mean, I know from following you guys on social media over the last year, I think you guys have summarized a lot of that up in a lot of ways while also really showcasing the kind of confoundment that we all feel when we look around at the country and go, is this really yeah. where, where we're at? So I yeah. appreciate you speaking on that. I really do. You bet. Hope that you enjoyed that conversation there with Grayson Curran. Um, like I said, we'll be sure to link some of the articles that uh, we mentioned there and that we discussed to give you guys a little bit better context. But we hope that you guys enjoyed that um, really soulful conversation with Grayson. Some really amazing things that he had to say about the state of music, as well as what it's like traveling around America right now at this very, uh, I guess, unique is the nice way to put it, period in our history. And if you have gotten anything from that interview, it's that you should listen to the Sleep album, Dope Smoker, and drop out of life yes. with bong in hand and make the trek across Nazareth. And hear their new record, The Sciences, which is really, really good. So, <laughs> and on that note, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. And we hope you enjoyed that interview with Grayson Curran. And come back shortly in a week or two. We'll have another piping hot episode of some fish, some non-fish, all good things in between. Join us as we go beyond. Osiris.